You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 156 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. A new wonderful year has arrived. Today is the auspicious date of January 7th, 2018. And if you count up the numbers of today's date, it goes 1 plus 7 plus 2 plus 0 plus 1 plus 8, which comes to 19. And 1 plus 9 is 10. And 1 plus 0 is 1. So in numerological terms, the number of the day is 1. Which is perfect, considering that this is the first episode of Hold On To Your Horses. The fifth year of this podcast. What the fuck happened? How fast does time go by? I actually had to go back and check, but yes, it is true. Before we get into the main topic of this episode, I want to talk about some new updates I had planned for this year. First topic of discussion is that I will be releasing a six-part mini-series in 2018 of all the recordings I did at the Altered Conference in Berlin in November of last year. There I met and recorded some interviews with a bunch of cool cats. So this will be released in a somewhat scattered way throughout the year. I also do a fair share of driving in my electric car and no, it isn't a Tesla. I wish, but they're a bit too expensive still. And uh, I also have a lifelong romance with a moving image, with films. So I've started recording myself in my car whilst driving, talking about various films that I enjoy and highly recommend. Films that might be unknown to you. Films that are sometimes under the radar, but not always. I've decided to call this segment the moving image in a moving vehicle. I will not have these in every single episode, but now and then when I feel like it. And I will feel like it in this episode, but not right now, later. A few months ago I started my Patreon page so people can support the podcast, because I don't want to have ads. And... uh, In case you did not know, I do have a life outside the podcast and I'm not only talking about my day job and raising a daughter and taking care of my cats. I do a bunch of other things as well. I have many projects on my plate. Making films, writing books, music. It is the curse of the Gemini, I guess. Sometimes I wish there were a few more hours in a day. But there isn't. And uh, therefore it would be awesome if you could support the podcast and keep it ad-free. It would be nice to quit my day job, but I don't think that's going to happen. But still, uh, it would be greatly appreciated if you can go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. I would appreciate it and uh, you don't have to do it, but if you do, you'll get access to all these episodes way in advance as well as other material, deleted material, rants and a bunch of other things not heard anywhere else. So join us over there, won't you? 
Another thing I want to mention is that I've noticed uh, for you people who listen to this podcast using iTunes is that they only display the last 100 episodes. A bit stupid, but that's what they do. So if you want to check uh, older episodes, uh, if you want to check those out, then you can go to the naturalbornalchemist.com website and click the archive button and dive into the past. Okay, enough updates. I only bother you guys with it during the first episode of each year. So uh, since this is the first episode of this year, it seems fitting to do it once more. Uh, Now for the main topic of this episode, which is about a guy who just had his birthday. And uh, I'm of course talking about... Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want to play a short sample regarding the notion of a savior from Rupert Sheldrake's podcast, the Science Set Free podcast, which you can find at sheldrake.org. I think that the idea of a savior is very, very hard to grasp in modern terms because, first of all, most people don't necessarily see that they need saving in the first place. it's rather a stretch to think exactly why do I need and saving from what. It's it, it's possible to understand it, but it's not very easy. It's not natural to most modern people to think that way. You see, I've, I've been thinking about this in, in evolutionary terms. Um, I find looking at religious practices in evolutionary terms is quite helpful. And if you look at this in terms of predator-prey relationships... Um, gods, on the whole, tend to be predicted, portrayed as carnivorous predators, you know, eagles, lions, and so forth. And, you know, in the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, Cain is the cultivator of fields and makes an offering to God of crops. Abel is a herder of sheep and makes an offering to God of meat. And God accepts the offering of meat and scorns the offering of vegetables and and plants. And then Cain's so jealous of Abel, he kills him. And it's the first fratric. These are the sons of Adam and Eve. The first One is a herder, the others... Are, it's like the agricultural revolution. Basically, the story... The Garden of Eden is a hunter-gatherer world. They live in a garden. They're not toiling by digging. You know, they're not digging the land. They're not cultivating the land. The Garden of Eden provides... Admittedly, it's portrayed as a vegetarian Garden of Eden. Um, But then they're driven out of the hunter-gatherer world of living in this primal paradise. And their two sons, one becomes... uh, The two aspects of the Neolithic Revolution, one becomes a herder of cattle, uh, a domesticator of cattle, of of animals, and the other becomes a cultivator of the ground. And in these early societies, the herders lived a different lifestyle from the cultivators because they moved with their flocks and the early Jewish patriarchs are all herders moving the flocks. The imagery of Judaism is, is torn really between these because after they moved into the Promised Land then they became agriculturalists but they're primarily flock, they have flocks of sheep and Jesus is portrayed as a shepherd and there's a lot of this imagery of herding. Anyway, the, one of the things about the um, animals that are prey animals 
in relation to predators is that if you have a flock of antelopes and a herd of antelopes in Africa hunted by lions, the lions follow the herd and they pick out the one that's weakest or on the margins or, or, or most vulnerable or sick or something. They kill that animal and then they eat it. They've got their dinner. And at that stage, the rest of the herd relax, and many of them just stand around, and they can even watch the lions eating that animal, because they know they're not in danger anymore. One has died for the sake of the rest. This is a very, very fundamental pattern in, in predator-prey relationships. And um, because predators don't just indiscriminately kill for the sake of killing. I mean, modern foxes might do when they come across a run full of hens, but... In, in the natural conditions, they kill what they need when they need it. And they only need one animal for a meal. Um, so this builds up this thing that the uh, one dies for the sake of the rest. And um, often the one that dies for the sake of the rest is, is a young male. In herds of baboons, um, as they move... Uh, through dangerous territory, you know, where they can be attacked by hyenas or other or other predators, very often uh, any baboon that falls behind through injury, they'll struggle desperately to keep up with the others. If if they fall behind, they're dead. Um, but the herd, as they as they move, the young males protect the group by taking up the flank positions. And if a predator attacks, the young males will try to fight it off. Something like 30% of the young males die protecting the rest of the, the group. Um, so there's a tremendous attrition of young males in, in primate, primate societies. Um, so the idea that one dies for the sake of the rest is deeply biological. Um, and so we get this in myths like the dragon threatens the whole society, so the king has to offer his daughter to the dragon, and then St. George comes along and kills the dragon and rescues the daughter. But those stories about every year the dragon has to have this sacrifice, you see, again, is playing into this archetype. And our ancestors were, you know, as Barbara Ehrenreich says in one of her books, Blood Rights, it's a very interesting book, I think, um, that we've got used to the idea from museum dioramas of man the hunter striding out onto the savannah. But actually... Um, for most of human history, it was much more man the hunted that humans were pretty defenseless in relation to saber toothed tigers, lions, leopards, and so forth. Um, and even today, the nightmares of young children are about being chased and devoured by wild animals, even though that's a totally unrealistic fear for a modern urban child. That's what they dream about, and that's what their nightmares are about. So this pattern of one dying for the sake of the other, O Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, you see, it's built into the Jewish tradition too, because you have the scapegoat, scapegoat, which is sacrificed for the others. And in the story of the Passover, you have the idea that the Paschal Lamb is sacrificed to save the Jews, but not the Egyptians. And of course, it goes right back to Abraham and Isaac, where there's a clear substitution of human sacrifice of the son Isaac uh, with animal sacrifice, uh, a, a ram. Um, so this idea of sacrifice as appeasing potential predators and one dying for the others is very, very archetypal. In a sense, 
a whole podcast series could deal with Jesus, and I'm certain there are a few of those already. No other figure in the last 2,000 years is as famous as Jesus, even for people who do not have anything to do with Jesus at all. Everyone knows who Jesus is, or at least the general details of his story. Did it happen? Is it a mythology? Does it matter? Not really. For me, Jesus is a symbol of the most controversial and most difficult aspect of what I consider the path we all should walk. And one that I've struggled with myself in my life. And that is loving your enemies. As it says in King James uh, in Matthew's uh, Gospel... And I'm going to quote it. And But, uh, you know, the King James was written or translated by patriarchal priests with a fetish for children and gold. So I've decided to replace the word father with the words divine mystery. It, it reads better. Anyway, in Matthew 5, uh, semicolon 43-45, uh, it, it says... Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of the divine mystery. For it maketh the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. If you think about it, the sun, for example, does not have a moral obligation to shine upon a saint any more than it has an obligation to shine on a despicable rapist. It shines on both equally. Some would argue that the reason for this is the fact that the sun does not have a dog in the fight. It is just an object. It has neither love nor hate for any human, any more than a table cares about the appointment of a new minister of transportation. And that could be true, but uh, that would be denying the divine mystery, which, for me, having had such close encounters with it, is not possible. It cannot be denied, no matter how hard I try. The radical and in a sense ballsy thing that Jesus is saying is that it is not your job to cast blame on somebody. Neither is it God's job because God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. It is not the job of the divine mystery to punish evildoers. So... If this is all true, then do they get away with it? No. Because as near-death researcher Dr. Alexander Eben says, and I paraphrase, no one gets out of here dead. This life and existence is only a temporary bus stop on the intergalactic eternal journey of the spirit. And what will happen to somebody who has been a complete asshole when they die, I don't want to know. Uh, Will they go to hell? I don't think they will. Like I said, the divine mystery is not going to punish anybody. 
but I think they will face their own assholism. Assholism. I don't know if that's a real word, but it is a real word now because I've said it. These people will face their own assholism. And that, my friend, is the worst experience in the world. I have in past ayahuasca ceremonies gone through this very process and it is not pretty. In fact, the worse of an asshole you are, the more horrifying it is. And worst of all, the most horrifying aspect of it is this, that mommy still loves you. In all that shame, pain and suffering that the asshole goes through crossing over to the other side. In all that there is a bright loving light with open arms and the shame becomes almost unbearable. Go ahead, call me naive, call it wishful thinking but there is too much evidence in my experience to not at least partially accept that this is what will happen. On the flip side, if you love everyone, if you become a saint, then in death you will not have to waste too much time going through all that bullshit. You can just pass over with ease. You can hop on the next tram and be on your way on your journey through the interdimensional roller coaster called existence and being alive. Because you are alive, even if you're dead. Anyway, that's my perspective on this whole thing. And uh, it's also what Jesus is saying, in my opinion, because, uh, you know, it's quite obvious that Jesus is not saying that when you die, that's it. You know, life doesn't stop there. But Jesus could also have been a mushroom. I'm puzzled. Uh, Are you really seriously suggesting that Jesus Christ was a mushroom? A foot... Pretty blankly, yes. Surely you don't suggest that Jesus Christ and his various disciples were not human creatures. Yes. You are dealing with a a secret cult, a secret society. The stories of the New Testament contain certain incantations, certain magic names, were which were really the names of mushrooms. No, but and the writers, the writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these men who wrote the story, you are telling me they did not exist? No. None of them exist. No, it's part of mythology. It's part of mushroom mythology. Are you really seriously suggesting that Jesus Christ was a mushroom? Yes. Are you really seriously suggesting that Jesus Christ was a mushroom? Yes. Are you really seriously suggesting that Jesus Christ was a mushroom? Yes. That was author John M. Allegro who wrote the groundbreaking and career-damaging book The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. So if Jesus was a mushroom, if he never existed, you know, if, if he, he was just a, an allegory of this uh, psychedelic ritual, 
the interesting bit about that in regards to loving your enemies is that in my experience, that is what the mushroom has told me as well. So it doesn't matter if Jesus was Jesus or if Jesus was a mushroom. The message is the same. Love your enemies, even though it is so, so hard. But why don't you give it a try, won't you? So as I mentioned earlier, let's listen to the first, the moving image in a moving vehicle. And the film I'll be talking about fits the topic of this episode, Like a Glove. The best film about the life of Jesus Christ is, in my opinion, The Last Temptation of Christ, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Willem Dafoe as Jesus and Harvey Keitel as Judas. And uh, there will be a lot of spoilers when I talk about this film, so if you really don't want to know anything about it, I suggest you watch it. Uh, but even if you are spoiled by what I'm saying, <laughs> uh, I still recommend you watch it because my words will always be weaker than the excellent art put together by Martin Scorsese and his partners in crime when making this film. And this film got actually banned because of a sequence where Jesus is having sex with Mary Magdalena and uh, you know any film that gets banned is a film worth watching in my opinion what I really like about this Jesus film is that first of all Judas is told by Jesus to betray him and Judas does not want to betray Jesus and uh, Jesus says that look you gotta betray me I have to die on the cross. And it's also a beautiful arc in the film because Jesus starts out life as a as a carpenter and then he uh, you know when he is a carpenter he he actually makes crosses for the Romans and then he ends up on a cross himself at the end of his life. So I think that's a nice touch. Uh, so anyway, Judas betrays Jesus even if it's against his own will and Jesus is on the cross and he's in pain and he's he goes you know father why have thou forsaken me and you know he's suffering and he, he you know he doesn't want to go through with it it's too painful and then then a, a, a little girl approaches the cross and she tells Jesus that uh, she's an angel sent by God because God doesn't want Jesus to suffer anymore he's suffered enough so this little angel this little girl helps Jesus off the cross and Jesus goes and marries Mary Magdalena they have sex you know this sex scene that was so controversial and then Mary Magdalena dies and he remarries and gets some kids and has a wife and all this and uh, you know lives his life becomes an old man with the gray hair and he's lying on his deathbed deathbed and uh, 
at this time, at this point in time, the disciples enter his house, and they go, you know, what, uh, what are you doing? You were supposed to die on the on the cross. Why are you living like a normal person? And then Judas comes in, and he's furious, and he goes, uh, you know, you told me to betray you, and this is what you do, motherfucker. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that, but that's what he means. You know, you betrayed me. Uh, told you told me to betray you, and now you betray me, but by not dying on the cross. And then Jesus says that. Well, you know, God told me that I'd suffered enough, and this angel here, and the, this little angel, this girl, is in the room with them all. Jesus point, uh, you know, directs their attention to her and says, "Look, she she saved me from the cross because God said I'd suffered enough." And Judas just looks at Jesus and this little angel, and he just says, "Don't you understand that this child?" this angel is the devil and uh, so basically Jesus has been tricked by the devil and I think this is amazing it uh, brings another depth to the story and I love it because it makes Jesus be just a man and we've all been tricked by the devil even if you don't believe in a devil you know the allegorical archetypal concept you know we, we've all tricked ourselves basically so uh, Jesus starts crawling and he crawls back to the cross and then suddenly he's back on the cross and this whole sequence when he had sex with Mary Magdalena when he had his children all this stuff all this was a dream or a trip I guess a psychedelic trip could, it could you could say and uh, he uh, he's back on the cross and he dies it's complete you know and the film ends and uh, you know I think it's great uh, it uh, it's definitely my favorite Jesus film and, and this whole sequence is excellent I mean there's other things in the film as well that are really good and you know I, I really suggest you watch the film even though I've spoiled the end third act the end the, the end of the film but you know everybody knows Jesus dies in the end don't they <laughs> um, it's also funny that Christians were upset that Jesus had sex when in the film you know this this happens during a sort of dream sequence which implies that Jesus didn't have sex you know he was dreaming he had sex but maybe that's also bad you know uh, but anyone who who believes that Jesus was a real person and anyone believes that you know should also know that Jesus started preaching the word of God when he was around 30 years old uh, so how can they even suggest that Jesus never even masturbated I think this is ridiculous I mean and what's wrong with masturbation you know so I think this objection about Jesus being just a man is a bit silly because you know God didn't send his son to earth as a spirit floating around he put him in the body of a human being of flesh and blood so of course you know 
he will be just like anybody else. The only difference is he has a mental connection with a higher power. Uh, so that's all I got to say about the last temptation of Christ. So I really, 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 really suggest if you haven't seen it, that you do. Because it is a very good film about the life of Jesus and very good actors as well. You know, you can never go wrong with Willem Dafoe and Harvey Keitel. And let's not forget who plays Pilate, which is none other than David Bowie. So there you go. All right, let's uh, wrap this baby up and listen to Dark Eyes by the Gentlemen's Anti-Temperance League from their album Lamp. Go to thegatl.com to hear more. All the links and contact forms can be found on nationalbornalchemist.com. Next Sunday will be the first part of the miniseries I mentioned earlier that I recorded at the Altered Conference in Berlin. Till then, have a great week and freedom is in the mind. Mm-hmm.